All right, let's open our Bibles to Mark chapter 11. For the young and for the young at heart. Mark chapter 11, <clears throat> beginning in verse 15. So I'm going to read to you. <clears throat> I'm going to read to you verses 15 through 26. Mark chapter 11, verse 15. So they came to Jerusalem. Then Jesus went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry wares through the temple. Then he taught, saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of thieves." And the scribes and chief priests heard it and sought how they might destroy him, for they feared him, because all the people were astonished at his teaching. When evening had come, he went out of the city. Now in the morning, as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. And Peter, remembering, said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered away. So Jesus answered and said to them, Have faith in God. For assuredly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be removed and be cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that those things he says will be done, he will have whatever he says. And therefore I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you receive them, and you will have them. And whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone... Forgive him that your Father in heaven may also forgive your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. Father, we ask that you would, by your Spirit, open our hearts and open our minds, enlighten the eyes of our understanding. Lord, let the powerful gospel powerfully work in our hearts and in our minds to change us and to conform us to the very image of the Son of God. We thank you. We praise you in Jesus' name. All of God's people said, Amen. Okay, so in Mark chapter 11, so we've been going through looking at the days leading up to the Passover, to the cross. In Mark chapter 11, verse 15, begins with Jesus coming into Jerusalem. And last week we looked at the cursing of the fig tree and we talked about how the fig tree related to the fall, how it related to the fall in terms of man trying to cover his own sin by his own works, how it related to the fall in terms of the nation of Israel. And so this is after the cursing of the fig tree, Jesus continues on into Jerusalem and he goes into the temple. And when he gets into the temple, he begins to overturn the tables of the money changers. He begins to drive out those who are 
selling the animals for the sacrifice. So they're getting ready for the Passover. They've got all of these things set up in the temple. And Jesus quotes from the Old Testament. He quotes from the prophet Isaiah. And after he runs everybody out of the temple, verse 16 says, or verse 17 says, he taught them saying, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of thieves. That's Isaiah chapter 56, verse 7. And it's not insignificant that Jesus cursed the fig tree on his way to cleanse the temple. When we think about what that fig tree represented in terms of the tree we were forbidden to eat from, in terms of how we live our lives from the knowledge of good and evil, Jesus curses the fig tree that throughout Scripture, the fig tree was a type of Israel. Now remember, Jesus didn't curse Israel because Israel, he didn't reject Israel. Israel rejected him. And the cursing of the fig tree represented the fact that the nation had rejected him. And it wasn't the end The cursing of the fig tree didn't signify an end. It signified a new beginning. Remember in Peter's letter, we read this. 1 Peter 2, verse 9 says that we are a holy nation, a royal priesthood. We are a people, God's own special treasure, a people that are to show forth the praise of him who called us out of darkness and into light. So that cursing of the fig tree was signifying that God was creating in Christ one new man, one holy nation. For God so loved the world, what does that mean? For God so loved both Jew and Gentile. Now here's, here was the attitude of the nation, the nation of Israel, the nation Jesus was born into. He was a Jew. He was a descendant of Abraham. He was a direct descendant of David. He had the right to sit on the throne. He was the rightful king of Israel. And as Jesus comes into Jerusalem, as he goes into the temple, he sees this market set up, run by the religious leaders of his day. And where did they set this market up? They set the market up in what was called the court of the Gentiles. Now, the fact that the temple had a court of the Gentiles should tell us something. What does it tell us? It tells us that salvation was always for the world, both Jew and Gentile. That God's plan all along was that he would save any, whosoever would call upon his name. You didn't have to be a descendant of Abraham in order to be saved. That's why we read Psalm 117 as our call to worship today. Psalm 117, laud him, you Gentiles. Praise him, you Gentiles. Worship him, you Gentiles. Salvation is of the Lord. 
not just for the Jew, but also for the Gentile. And so here is the Savior who was going to give his life for the sins of the world. He was going to give his life for the sins of not just Jews, but also Gentiles. He comes into his father's house, the temple, and in the temple is this marketplace set up in the court of the Gentiles. And to make it more convenient so that people wouldn't have to walk all the way around, the court of the Gentiles became a common pass-through. In other words, here was the attitude, oh, this is just the court of the Gentiles, it doesn't matter, they're a bunch of heathen anyways. Who cares about the Gentiles? They're pagans, they're unbelievers. So there was this attitude And what God had called holy and what God had set aside as holy, the nation had just called common. So they set their market up, not in the court of the priests, God forbid, that would be horrible. They set it up in the court of the Gentiles as if that wasn't even part of the temple, as if that wasn't even a holy place. And not only did they have that set up there, not only did they use that as a common pass-through, but... But it was corrupt. They had unjust weights and unjust balances. And Jesus comes into his father's house and he drives all of those people out. He overturns the tables of the money changers. He drives them out because they are demeaning their, his father's house. This is a house of prayer, not just for the Jew. This is a house of prayer for all nations, for Jew and Gentile. And you have taken this place that was set aside for the nations and you've turned it into a money-making venture full of your corruption. And you have totally ignored what God has declared in his word and what God has set aside. And so what does Jesus do? He does what any good son would do. He comes into his father's house and he cleans it. He cleans it of the filth. He cleans it of the corruption. He drives them out. And then he teaches the people. And he quotes the scripture. He doesn't give them his opinion. He gives them the word of God. My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of thieves. And the scribes and the chief priests heard it and sought how they might destroy him, for they feared him because of the people that were astonished at his teaching. The chief priests, the scribes, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, the people who ran that market, heard what Jesus said, And they saw how they might destroy him. These are the people that have rejected their Messiah. So the greater context that we see in Isaiah, I'm not going to read it to you for time's sake, but Isaiah 56, 6 through 12, pictures for us the nations, the Gentiles coming to God in worship. God made a place in his house for the nations, but the corruption of those in Israel defamed what God had set apart as holy. So the court of the Gentiles had become this public pass-through, this corrupt market for animal sellers and money changers who operated within a system that had no regard for what God had set aside to be holy. 
God's house was never meant to be only for natural Israel because salvation and worship of God was never only meant to be for a natural Jew or the nation of Israel. Salvation is of the Lord for Jew and Gentile alike by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Worship of God is not only for Israel, it is for the world. That's why you find in your Bibles in Acts chapter 15, actually, a letter written from the church in Jerusalem to the Gentile churches saying, you don't have to become Jews in order to be saved. You must trust in Jesus. Abstain from sexual immorality. Trust in Jesus. You don't have to keep the ordinances of the law. Why? Because the law is no good? No, Paul says the law is good. We're the ones not good. It's impossible for us to keep the law. Who kept the law? Jesus kept the law. Who keeps the law? Jesus keeps the law. Who is the lawgiver? Jesus is the lawgiver. Who's the law keeper? Jesus is the law keeper. If you're commanded to keep the law, how are you going to do that? By trusting in Jesus who's keeping the law in your stead because you cannot. The moment you take your eyes off Jesus and think you can keep the law yourself, you've fallen from grace. You're trusting in works, not grace. This is the point of Paul's whole letter to the Galatians. So we're justified by faith, but faith doesn't mean our life shouldn't look a certain way. Faith doesn't mean our life shouldn't manifest certain characteristics or, as the Bible calls them, fruit, the fruit of the Spirit. Where does that come from? It comes from the life of the Spirit on the inside of me. So here Jesus comes into his Father's house. He begins to teach this is a house of prayer for all nations. Jesus is beginning to show them that salvation, the salvation he is bringing is not just for the Jew, but Jesus is dying for the world. He's dying for Jew and Gentile alike. So God's house was never meant to be this place just for a certain group of people. It was meant always for the world, just as salvation was. Salvation is for all who put their faith in Jesus Christ, Jew and Gentile. The temple and all that God has revealed in his word points us to Christ, who is the Savior of the world, the Savior of Jew and Gentile alike. So this was not the first time that Jesus cleansed the temple. In the beginning of his earthly ministry, Jesus came into the temple, and it's recorded for us in John chapter 2, verses 13 through 22. It records this event when Jesus speaks of destroying this temple. Let's turn over there. Go to John chapter 2. So this is John chapter 2. It's after Jesus has been baptized by John. So this is at the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry. Now, it's, I think it's significant that at the beginning of his earthly ministry, he goes in and cleanses the temple. And at the end of his earthly ministry, before he goes to the cross, he goes in and cleanses the temple. Both of these cleansings happen at the Feast of Passover. Both of them, because Passover 
was one of the three feasts in which all, every male was commanded to come to Jerusalem, but also because Jesus not only celebrated the Passover, he is the fulfillment of the Passover. Now what's interesting about this first, this first incident recorded for us in John chapter 2, verse 13, let's read it. John chapter 2, verse 13, Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. And when he had made a whip of cords, he drove them out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold doves, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Then his disciples remembered what was written. They remembered the word of God. Zeal for your house has eaten me up. So the Jews answered and said to him, what sign do you show since you do these things? And Jesus answered and said to them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. When the Jews then the Jews said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? Verse 21 gives us the commentary. It gives us the interpretation of what Jesus meant. Verse 21, this is very important, but he was speaking of the temple of his body. So when Solomon built the temple, what was the temple pointing to? Jesus, who is the true temple. The Babylonians destroyed it in 586 BC. Ezra and Nehemiah come back from the captivity. They build a second temple. What does the second temple point us to? It points us to the ultimate third temple, which is who? Jesus. And so it is that second temple that Jesus is standing in. So Ezra and Nehemiah started it. Hezekiah continued its expansion. Herod is expanding it even more. So when Jesus walks into the temple, actually when Jesus is carried into the temple 40 days old, 40 days after his birth to be dedicated in obedience to the law, this is still the second temple that was built after the captivity. Herod had expanded it and beautified it and glorified it. In his own image, really. Jesus says, here's the sign I'll show you. Tear this temple down and in three days I'll, I'll raise it up. And, and they just didn't get what Jesus was talking about. But the Bible tells us, the Spirit of God tells us, he spoke of the temple of his body. And in reality, Jesus goes in three years before his crucifixion on the Passover, and he declares his death. He declares that he will be crucified, but he will be raised up. Now, they missed it, but the Spirit of God gives us commentary here in verse 21. So it records this event of Jesus Speaking of his death and his resurrection, the temple of his body. 
in 70 AD, just 40 some odd years after the crucifixion of Jesus, the Romans came into Jerusalem and they tore down that temple and they destroyed that city. And I believe they fulfilled it ultimately just as Jesus said. We're not going to talk about this today, but Jesus said not even one stone will be left upon another. And I believe that was literally, absolutely fulfilled. That there is not one stone left upon another of that temple. I don't think Jesus is a false prophet. I think he's a true prophet. And that's exactly what happened So this Roman army under the command of Titus comes in, they destroy the temple in Jerusalem, and to this day it has not been rebuilt by man. But who raised up the temple three days later? God did. We're still looking for an earthly temple to be rebuilt, and God has raised up his eternal temple in Jesus Christ. And we get more excited about an earthly temple than we do the risen Savior. And I'm going to tell you what, church, that's not right. The temple has been raised. Jesus is risen. He's not in a tomb somewhere. He ascended to the Father. He sits at the right hand of the majesty on high. He is the risen temple of God. You are, the Bible says, lively stones. You are the temple of God. Paul writes this. Either Paul's a liar or he's mistaken. But he writes in the letter to the Corinthians... You are, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. We look at the tabernacle and the temple and we we saw the ark in there. Listen, Jesus is the ark. The ark, the true ark lives in the true temple now. He is the temple. Read Revelation 21. There will not be a temple in the new heaven and the new earth. Why? Because the lamb, the lamb is the temple. That's what the Bible says. And I would suggest that you ask God to give you a revelation of who you are in Christ, that you are the temple. You're the very temple of the Holy Spirit. God lives on the inside of you. If that doesn't make you excited, then I don't know what will. God lives on the inside of you. Jesus was crucified. Jesus was buried. And in three days, Jesus was resurrected. He ascended to the Father. He received the kingdom. Now the risen Jesus has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Matthew 28, 18. Jesus says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and do what? Make disciples. That's good news. In all of his authority, he commands us to go and to make disciples of all the nations. That means of Jews and of Gentiles. That he would build a church from every nation, from every tongue, from every tribe to the glory of his Father. Because his Father's house is a house of prayer for all nations. It is that today. The church is his house. You are the temple. We have people here from from all sorts of nations. Doesn't matter today whether you're Jew or whether you're Gentile. If God lives on the inside of you, you are the temple of God and you are called a house of prayer.
Jesus is the tree of life. He has given us the words of life and he commands all to believe on his name and be saved. And those who obey his call will be saved as they put their trust in Christ. For Christ alone is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by him for he alone is our life. Christ is our life. He cursed the fig tree that represented that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that tree we try to live from. We try to manage good and evil in an attempt to become acceptable to God. And God says that tree is cursed because you will never become acceptable to God through your management of good and evil. You must come to the tree of life. Christ is the tree of life. But in order to come and eat from that tree, you will be struck down by that cherubim that represents the cross. But when you have been crucified with Christ, you will be raised with him in glory. You will partake of his life and you will live eternally in Christ Jesus. So when Jesus cleansed the temple, Jesus was making a statement that salvation is for the world. It's not just for Jews. This temple is not just for Jews. This temple is for the world, for Jew, for Gentile. This temple is for a holy nation, a royal priesthood, one new man that Christ created in himself when he broke down the middle wall of separation and he caused the two, Jew and Gentile, to become one in him. That's who we are now. We're no longer known by God as Jew or Gentile. We're known by God either in Christ or if we're not in Christ, we're not known by him. Jesus said to those that come, came to him in that day, we did many miracles, Lord, in your name. He said, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, for I do not know you. They obviously knew who Jesus was and they thought by their good works and their association with the name of Jesus they could gain entrance into heaven. Jesus says, no, you will never gain entrance into eternal life by your good works, even if you know my name. What's most important is not that you know Jesus, it's that Jesus know you. And if you are trusting in Jesus and the good work, the only work acceptable to the Father, if you're trusting in that work, trust that you are known by him. So Jesus teaches in the temple, he teaches that that his father's house is a house of prayer for all nations. And then they depart the temple and they're going back to Bethany. Go back to, to Mark chapter 11. <clears throat> and as Jesus and his disciples are leaving Jerusalem and they're on their way back to Bethany, they spend the night there they come back to the, to the city the next morning. So verse 19, when evening had come, he went out of the city. Verse 20, now in the morning. So Jesus comes into Jerusalem. He teaches all day in the temple. He teaches about his father's house. They leave. 
When they come back in the morning, it says, As they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. And Peter, remembering, said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered away. And Jesus answered and said to them, Have faith in God. For assuredly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be removed, and it, be, it would be cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believe that those things he says will be done, he will have whatever he says." Therefore, I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you receive them and you will have them. And whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him that your father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your father in heaven forgive your trespasses. So Jesus teaches about faith and he teaches about prayer. And Jesus makes this statement in verse 22, have faith in God. That's probably how it's recorded in your Bible, but the literal translation is this, have the faith of God. Have the faith of God is the literal translation of what Jesus commands here. What is it to have the faith of God? To have the faith of God is to have faith in God. If you have faith in God today, you have the faith of God. It is to have the faith that has God as its author. We are to exercise and to make use of that faith which is the work and the operation of God. Faith is listed in Galatians 5, 22 and 23 as a fruit of the Spirit. Hebrews 11 says, looking unto Jesus, or Hebrews 12, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. The faith of God is a free grace gift originating from God. Our faith has God as its author and it is faith that has God as its object. So God is not just the author of our faith. God should be the object of your faith. So when Jesus makes this statement, whoever says to this mountain... He's coming up upon the, the, the Mount of Olives. So here is the Mount of Olives before them. They haven't ascended the Mount of Olives yet. They're at the withered fig tree. And now Jesus takes this opportunity to teach them about faith and about prayer. And he says, looking at the Mount of Olives, you can say to this mountain, be cast into the sea. Now here's the faith of God. The faith of God is not you looking at the mountain. Have anybody ever seen a movie called Little Boy? Remember Little Boy and he thinks he can move things and he stands there uh, uh, looking at this object that he wants to move and part of the movie is he's looking at this mountain and an earthquake happens. Listen, that's not what Jesus is teaching us. We're not standing there going uh, to our situation. The object of our faith is not the thing we're looking at. The object of our faith is God. We're to look to God, keep our eyes on God. Because you're not going to be the one to move the mountain. God's going to be the one to move the mountain. You have to make God not just, you need to understand, he's not just the author, but he needs to become the object of your faith. 
It is faith from God directed back to God. Faith in God is upheld by his power and it's encouraged by his goodness, his truth, and his faithfulness. Therefore, the author and object of biblical faith is God. It's a free gift of grace given to us by God. God in his grace is the originator of our faith, the object of our faith, and he is the power upholding our faith. This is what it means to have the faith of God. He's the author, the originator, and the power. You and I don't have the strength to uphold our faith the way the Bible tells us to have faith. In fact, Jesus says, if you have faith just the size of a grain of a mustard seed, everybody, anybody ever seen a mustard seed? You know how small a mustard seed is? You mean only have to have mustard seed faith to move a mountain? Yes, yes. You know why? Because it, that's, that's the size faith you have to have in order to be saved. What do you mean? Your salvation is by trusting in Jesus. You're not trusting in what you're able to do. You're trusting in what God has already done. And if you think your faith has got to be big enough to move mountains, then you've missed the whole point of what Jesus is teaching us here. Jesus says, have the faith of God. In other words, have the faith that originates with God and have the faith that holds God as the object. It's not my power, it's not my straining that's going to move the mountain. It's God that's going to move the mountain. So where should my faith be placed? It should be placed in God. It should rest in God. It should abide in God. I should have peace as my faith is in God. And my peace is that if the mountain needs to be moved, God will move it. If the mountain doesn't need to be moved, guess what? The mountain's not going to move. So Jesus says, have the faith of God. He also says this, when you pray, believe. Faith is given to us that we may exercise it. Jesus taught us to pray in this manner. Whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you receive them and you will have them. We should exercise faith, believing that as we pray according to his revealed will, we will have what we ask. This is not a formula to give us a blank check, but the grace of God to give us assurance concerning the one hearing our prayers. We should believe and not doubt that God will answer according to his will, but we should also rest assured that God has grace in our doubts. Remember the man that prayed, Lord, I believe, help thou my unbelief. That's a valid prayer. God is not waiting to hold our doubt against us. God is working to eliminate our doubt. The grace of God never justifies our doubt, but empowers us in the midst of our doubt and encourages us in the faith to replace doubt with trust in God. Faith is a gift of his grace that we are called to exercise, and we exercise it by his grace and by his power that he supplies to us. Jesus also said this, when you pray, forgive. Verse 25, unforgiveness is not only a hindrance to your prayers, it is deadly to your soul. We are commanded to forgive as we have been forgiven. Jesus commands his disciples to forgive just days before his betrayal and murder at the hands of sinful men. 
Now think about this. Jesus knows what's getting ready to happen to him. He is just three to four days out from the crucifixion. And he's teaching them about faith and he's talking to them about prayer and he reminds them, if you do not forgive, you will not be forgiven by your Father in heaven. And I don't think Jesus is just referring to whatever situations and circumstances his disciples might have been dealing with at the time. I think Jesus is looking ahead and he's warning them and he's telling them this so that they would remember that there would not be bitterness in their heart toward those who crucified Jesus. That they would need to come to this place of understanding that the, sin, that the sin of those men who crucified Jesus was just as abominable to God as the sin that existed in his disciples. I profess to be a follower of Jesus, but if I don't understand that my sin nailed Jesus to the cross as much as the sin of those men who literally drove the nails into that wood that held Jesus on that cross. If I don't understand that my sin is just as sinful, just as unacceptable to God as the sin of those who murdered Jesus, then I don't understand sin, and I don't understand righteousness, and I don't understand salvation. So Jesus is reminding them that they must forgive in order to be forgiven. Paul writes in Colossians 3, verses 12 and 13, Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, it's all fruit of the Spirit, bearing with one another and forgiving one another, if anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. So you also must do. It's a command. You cannot give what you do not have. As God gives us forgiveness, we must forgive others that are just as undeserving as we are. We are commanded to forgive as we have been forgiven and to love as we have been loved. God in his grace lavishes his forgiveness and love upon us and we are commanded to do the same with grace and without condition. If you will pray and ask God to give you the grace to forgive, he will answer that prayer and he will give you the grace necessary to forgive and to love. Here's where we might want to start in that prayer. We might start that prayer by asking God to reveal to us, to ourself, how undeserving we were of his forgiveness that we received in his grace. That's a prayer God will answer. He will surely answer that prayer if you sincerely want to see how undeserving you are of his grace and his forgiveness. And when we see that, it becomes much easier for us to extend forgiveness to others because we realize what God has extended to us. I want to say this, that unanswered prayer is not always due to a lack of faith. Say, well, I prayed, but God didn't answer my prayer, Pastor. Jesus teaches us to pray without doubting. And doubts often arise because we're focused on the situation instead of on God. And as we pray specifically for things, our focus should be on God, for He is the author and the object of our faith. He's also the provider of all that we need. And I mean all. 
As we focus our prayers in God, we should pray with assurance. We should pray without doubting, without doubting God's love and His good plan and His good purpose that's being worked out in all things. That's what Romans 8.28 teaches us. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7 through 10, it's the account where Paul is praying and asking God to remove the thorn from his side. And Paul says, God gave me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to buffet me. And Paul says, I prayed three times that it be removed, and God would not remove it. Is it because Paul didn't have enough faith? No, it's because God had a different purpose for the thorn. Paul wanted the thorn to be removed, but God didn't remove it because God put the thorn there, and God had a purpose for the thorn. And so God wasn't going to remove from Paul the thing that he put there for Paul's good. Paul prayed for the thorn in his side to be removed, but God didn't remove it because it, was, because it had a different purpose. God's answer to us can be no. That is an answer to prayer. It's not an answer we like, but it is an answer. And God's answer to Paul was, no, remove this, God, no. Remove this, please, God, no. God, I'm asking you a third time, please remove it. God's answer, no. God didn't remove the thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan sent to buffet Paul so that Paul would not be exalted. This is what Paul said. God didn't remove it so that I would not be exalted above measure. In other words, according to Paul, God allowed the thorn to remain in place so that Paul's pride would remain in place. The thorn was for Paul's protection and for his good, unpleasant though it was. God is more concerned with our welfare and our salvation than our comfort and our convenience. And he answers our prayers accordingly and ever works in our life to this good end. And this reveals to us that God works all things for our good and for his glory. When we pray, in all of life, and in all of life's challenges, we should be reminded of this truth recorded for us in Romans 8, 28, that God works all things together for good to those that love Him and are the called. God doesn't always answer our prayers in the manner that we want or we prefer, but He always answers them in the manner that leads to our ultimate good and His greatest glory. Amen, church.